Welcome back. Our effort, our primary goal with this podcast, is truly to encourage, exhort, and equip busy believers to become committed and competent disciples of Christ in every area of life. One of the men who has had a massive impact on both of us in that regard is Gene Cunningham. Gene served as a pastor for 30 years in the U.S. and Australia, and he and his wife Nan are now full-time missionaries with basic training Bible ministries, traveling around the world teaching indigenous pastors and workers. All of his books are available for free at basictraining.org, as well as more audio of his teaching. Gene has been instrumental in establishing Bible schools in Africa, India, and Papua New Guinea, Gene's wife, Nan, is his constant support and companion and holds classes for the pastor's wives. She has developed Bible schools for children in both India and Papua New Guinea, which are rapidly growing, drawing thousands of students annually. Gene and Nan have been longtime friends of our church. They were integral in the startup and continuing ministry of our own summer youth camp. They continue to travel around the U.S. putting on Bible conferences, and that's what they're here for this weekend, the Erie Conference. So we actually had the opportunity to grab Gene for a quick conversation for the podcast. So what's in, what's in store for you and Nan after this weekend? Well, we have a conference scheduled in uh, Winchester, Virginia, uh, the first weekend in uh, April. Um Normally, of course, Nan and I are gone three or four times a year overseas. I've kind of curtailed my overseas travel because I'm working on a project that was requested from some of the pastors that I work with in Myanmar um, regarding just going through the New Testament and basically doing notes kind of like what we have in a study Bible. Um, those people can't afford study Bibles, so they can't afford you know, to even have notes like that. So... I'm trying to go through the entire New Testament in approximately a year. Uh, probably going to take me a little bit longer, uh, about two-thirds of the way through the Gospel of Luke, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, hoping to get all the way through the book of Revelation and just try to make notes on some of the passages that are confusing or uh, you know, things that need a little bit of historical explanation, things like that. So mm -hmm. that's kind of slowed down the travels, but it's, I'm finding it challenging, but I'm finding it uh, very beneficial as well. I bet it's rewarding. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be fun. Well, so will it be kind of a, a succinct, uh, a concise commentary on the entire, like, yeah, are you, are you basically going verse by verse or is it uh, no, kind of hitting the high points? Yeah, I'm just trying to hit the high points. Uh you know, I'm trying to leave passages that seem to be clear alone, um, but verses that need a little bit of explanation. Basically, what you find in a, a good study Bible. Okay. Uh, and I'm trying to include lots of cross-references so that pastors overseas have other uh, passages that they can turn to and compare and contrast and help them prepare messages and things like that. So, Other than you, who, what other training do these pastors in that area receive i mean especially in the remote areas most of them go, have none at all and that's other, why you go right exactly uh, other than you know any books that they may be able to get their hands on which uh, a lot of the good books that are really going to help them aren't translated into their language so that makes it very difficult for right. the guys that don't speak english right so that's been my main focus over the last uh, 25 years is if i can go and help train pastors and just clarify their theological training and give them a little bit of a foundation, then they can take that to their people and 
it becomes a big benefit. As as you've been traveling around for decades, you you've mentioned that there are a couple of things that come up no matter where you are, questions that come up every time. Can you tell us what those are? The two things that come up more than anything else is the clarity of the gospel. You know, they want to know what is the way of salvation because, as you guys know, there are a million different ideas out there about what it takes to enter eternal life. I always boil it down to by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. And, and then, of course, the issue of eternal security. Uh, that's probably the one where I run into the most opposition uh, because the prevailing idea in, I don't know, I'd say 90-95% of the world is you believe in Christ, you receive eternal life, and then if you sin, you lose it, mm. you know? Mm. Or there's there's varying degrees of how bad you have to be, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, to lose it. And uh, obviously, I am an absolute staunch supporter of the security of our salvation. And uh, as I tell people, I am not a preacher of insecurity. I proclaim the security of the believer in Christ. And I heard a, a major... A uh, teacher in the United States a while back make the comment to, uh, he was at a pastor's conference, and his comment was, if you're not creating doubt in the minds of your people, whether they're going to heaven or not, you're not doing your job. And, you <laughs> wow. know, to me, he's a preacher of insecurity. Yeah. And and you could never know. No one could ever know that they have eternal life. Right. So so if if we are saved by grace and forever kept saved by grace, does that mean that once we're saved, we can sin right and left and it doesn't really make any difference? Well, that's always the question that comes up. You know, uh, opponents will always say, well, if your position is right, then a Christian can just believe in Christ and then go out and do anything that they want to do. The first thing that they have an, uh, a misunderstanding about is, did Christ die for the sins we committed before we believed, but not the ones after? My conviction is Christ died for every sin of every person throughout all of human history. And that brings us back to the question, then, does that mean that a Christian can just go out and do anything? Uh, Paul says in Romans 7, where he expresses his wrestling with the things that he should do and the things he was commanded not to do, uh, you cannot do what you want to do. And the reason for that is you have the indwelling spirit. You're going to have conviction from the Holy Spirit. And if that conviction is rejected, then there's going to be discipline from God. And God knows how to bring believers to their knees, and He knows how to humble us, and He is a faithful Father. And when it comes time to use the rod, uh, He will use the rod on us. And of course, I believe that if a, if a Christian continues to be rebellious and just refuses to accept the convicting of the Spirit and the correction of the Word, uh, there will come a, a point of time... Uh, where they're going to exhaust the long-suffering of God, and he's going to take them home. Mm -hmm. We have, you know, the example of uh, Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, and then 1 John 5, 16 mm -hmm. talks about sinning to the point of death. Right. Yeah. It's, it's not that there's a particular sin. Most people think, well, there must be one sin right. that you can't be forgiven for. It's not one sin. It's a pattern of sin that persists to the point uh, where God's going to take that child home early. And you see that um, in 1 Corinthians 11, you know, Paul says, some of you are sick, some of you have died. Exactly. That's another example. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so you've mentioned uh, a couple times this weekend the doctrine of eternal rewards. So how does that 
tie in? Can you can you kind of summarize what the doctrine of eternal rewards is? Well, yeah, e- eternal rewards. It's interesting that Jesus, in his first major message, the Sermon on the Mount, repeatedly mentions eternal reward. And he challenges the disciples, you know, when you give, don't give to be seen by men because then you already have your reward. Uh, when you pray, don't pray to be seen by men. Uh, do these things in secret. And your father who sees in secret will then reward you openly. And I think that open reward can relate both to blessing in time. Um, God shows that he's, his approval is on your life and he blesses your life and your ministry. Um, but certainly it's looking forward to the fact that there will be rewards in eternity. And really, in fact, this is the topic that I'm going to be teaching on in Virginia. I was astounded how many passages there are in the Old Testament that talk about eternal reward. Daniel talks about it quite a bit. The Psalms talk about it quite a bit. You know, Jesus uh, spoke of varying levels of rewards. Uh, He talked about rewards for giving a cup of cold water to a child in his name or uh, giving a cup of water to a prophet. If you uh, care for a prophet, you share in the prophet's reward. Uh, It kind of develops all the way up into the idea of inheritance. Every Christian has an inheritance. Peter tells us that the moment we believe in Jesus Christ, we have an inheritance that's incorruptible and undefiled and fades not away. So that that basic inheritance that a child of God is going to receive uh, is is set and settled. But beyond that, there is the idea that we see running through the Old Testament of the uh, the inheritance of the firstborn. And so when the Bible talks about inheriting salvation, I'm convinced it's not talking about entering eternal life. I'm, I'm convinced that it's talking about actually enhancing your inheritance throughout all eternity. And then, of course, you get all the way up to the highest level, which seems to be the crowns, the crown of righteousness, the crown of joy, crown of life, the unfading crown that Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, those crowns seem to be given to those who persevere over a long period of time, and therefore they're going to have a fitting reward in eternity. Mm. So if there are, assumedly, varying degrees of reward, you know, you, you may earn more rewards or you may forfeit rewards, or this believer may have a higher degree of reward or in whatever way that might be, whether it's recognition or responsibility or in the kingdom or whatnot. Right. Um, if there are differences between people, how, how do, why do you think that that's so hard for us to, in our egalitarian society, or Richard Weaver calls it equalitarianism, you know, mm-hmm. e- our equalitarian obsession with we want everything to be flat, we want everything to be... No hierarchy, no difference, no... And, of course, you see it in the, the current social right. environment as well, that we don't want any distinction, we don't want any height and depth, we just want everything flat and equal in condition. Do you think that that plays into why people have ignored the doctrine of rewards well, or push I would, against it? I would say two things. I would say, historically, the doctrine of rewards has not been taught. Uh, it's probably one of the most overlooked teachings in the Bible, and as you go back through history, you might find mention of you'll go to your reward or God will reward you, but it's never really been developed. So that's a problem because we don't have a tradition throughout church history of people delving into the teaching of eternal rewards. 
And I think a second thing is just the creeping permeation of, of socialism uh, into our society. It's the idea that, you know, everybody gets a participation trophy. Yeah. And that's just contrary to reality. That's not the way life works. Right. Uh, people who work hard succeed and prosper, and people that don't are not going to. And it's, it, that's never going to change. So I, I think many people probably grew up, as I did as a kid, with the idea that we get to heaven, we're all equal, everybody has exactly the same. You know, we sit on a cloud and play a harp forever, and it sounded like the most boring eternity that I could have imagined. <laughs> yeah. When you start thinking about eternity being a kingdom, mm. and I love the Lord of the Rings movies because I think they really bring it into a visual perspective that here is a king that is going to be crowned. He's going to have a kingdom. He's got his loyal followers, and some did better, and some didn't do so well, but each is going to be rewarded with total fairness and total justice. And I, as I mentioned during the, uh, the conference, I've been working on a series of posts on the Sabbath, and my next post is going to be on the year of Jubilee, and I got really excited about this because if we if we look at the year of Jubilee and we think of it in terms of the kingdom, a lot of things that were lost, sometimes due to personal failure, uh, you lost your property, you lost your land, you think of the story of Ruth, you know, they, they leave the promised land and, and property and, and produce is, is lost. And basically, yeah. Boaz is the one that, that uh, purchases it back. But the idea in the year of Jubilee is that anything that was lost is returned to you. When we think about that from an eternal standpoint, it brings in to me some really intriguing ideas. Probably each and every one of us has caused someone else loss. Somehow, maybe we are going to restore them. If I uh, receive a reward and there's somebody that I defrauded along the way or someone that I caused to stumble along the way, and maybe because I caused them to stumble, that in their discouragement, they gave up. Maybe part of my reward is sharing some with them. And I like that idea because when you read early in the, in the gospel story about John coming and calling the people to repentance, and they ask him, what shall we do? You know, the, the slaves ask him and the soldiers ask him and different people ask him. He didn't put on them a burden that was crushing. He put on them a, a very practical and a very uh, gracious burden. Hey, if you've got two coats, share one with a guy who doesn't. If you have more than what you need, uh, you share with someone else. So I kind of like to think of that working into the, the whole scenario of the judgment seat of Christ uh, the wood, hay, and stubble goes up in smoke, and which really is not so much a judgment. I think it's an act of grace. Hmm. Those are things that we don't want to carry with us into yeah. eternity. You know, we want to leave those behind. Uh, the things that we've done that are worthy of remaining, maybe we're going to be sharing some of them with others that restores to them something that maybe they've lost along the way. Hmm. Why do you think that the doctrine of rewards is is so important to to be aware of or to be taught on um, over against the just relating everything to whether you're saved or not? Well, again, the great problem through history uh, is that it seems like the whole goal of the Christian life is to get saved. You know, get saved and then don't sin. Yeah. But people are not taught how to 
overcome sin in their life and therefore it's just a constant frustrating struggle of sinning and failing and feeling miserable and and so on and so forth. To me, the doctrine of eternal rewards is motivation. Uh, it's If you look at the Christian life as a coin with two sides and one side, going back to your question, can we just do anything we want? Well, no, we can't, because on the one hand, we have the negative, which is divine discipline. God disciplines those that he loves. It's never out of uh, wrath. It's never out of anger in that sense. It's always out of love for the person and, and for their life. But there's divine discipline, which can go through the, the stages of rebuke. It can go through the stage of chastening, and then it can go to the stage of scourging. And if scourging doesn't work, then it can go to the sin unto death. Um, we kind of see those stages in, laid out in Hebrews chapter 12. But on the other side, it's not just a don't do this because God's going to get you. Don't do this because you're going to reap what you sow, which is another aspect of discipline. It's why would we want to live a life that was rewardable? And to me, it really comes down to the love of Christ. Um, I want to enter into eternity with something to say, this is how I say thank you for what you've done for me. So I think uh, teaching the value of rewards, and of course, we've all heard this. People say, well, I'm not doing what I do for the reward. That would be selfish. Right. Well, it's really not because the reward is, is my gift to my Redeemer and my Savior for the sacrifice that he gave me. And um, I suppose the passage that comes to mind is where Paul talks in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14 and 15. He says, the love of Christ compels us because we judge that if one died for all, all were dead. We know that the whole human race was dead in trespasses and sin. But he goes on to say in verse 15, and he died so that those who live, that is believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who are regenerate, would no longer live for themselves but for him. And I think it's actually an expression of love. I mean, you think of a, a bridegroom coming to his bride with nothing to offer her. Uh, you know, this is what I think of you, kind of a thing. Instead of coming with, this is all that I have to offer you. This is, I want you to have everything that I can give you. Yeah, I think no matter how you, <laughs> no matter how we phrase it, it's going to be very unpalatable to the world. I know we commented on it earlier, but the more I hear it, talked about it's just there's even in in me things i hear and i have to remind myself like no that's not because i work with the world in and out every day my right. job is in corporate america now i was in the military before that and all of that is you know it's you just hear it all day every day you know be fair be whatever and it just i think it really especially talking about christ um you know well god's he's not partial he's no respecter of persons um, how dare you talk about how some of us will be greater than others, like God's the great equalizer, all this stuff um, starts coming to mind immediately, you know, like what would people say about this? But I, I do think it's important. I think it's something that if, if you're having those thoughts listening to, to something like this, you have to reorder your mind. You have to go, like Romans 12 says, and you have to conform your mind. Right. You have to, to renew it um, and think the way the, the word teaches us to think on this. Well, actually, what those people don't realize is that by arguing for a, a flat earth mentality or a, a absolutely equal mentality right. uh, where everybody is on the same playing field, they're arguing for an unjust God. Right. Because it is unjust for God not to recognize those who are spiritually motivated, those who sacrifice. Uh, you know, Paul says, if we suffer with him, we'll reign with him. For God to, to take 
the believer who just stumbles along and sleepwalks through life as opposed to the person who sacrifices everything in order to serve and be faithful to, to say, okay, everybody has the same thing. That's unjust. And if you look at Romans chapter 2, Paul makes a, a real big point uh, as he's going through developing the sinfulness of the human race. God is no respecter of persons, and he is a fair judge. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's exactly why he disciplines and also why he offers uh, the opportunity for reward. Hmm. What would yeah. you say to the pushback of, well, you're really making a lot out of a little bit of Scripture. Actually, there's a lot more about reward in Scripture, right. uh, and and I'm I'm in the process of uh, listing a, a number of Old Testament passages uh, that are very clear. Just uh, one that comes to mind in Daniel Daniel 12, he talks about those who lead many to righteousness, which I take not only to be referring to. Uh, leading people to Christ, that certainly would be a part of it, but also just developing them in their spiritual life and, and helping them grow to spiritual maturity. And he says they're going to shine as the stars of the firmament forever and ever. Well, that to me makes a distinction. What about those who are not playing their part? What about those who are not encouraging others or not witnessing and so on and so forth? And of course, when you look up at the night on a clear night in a starry sky, you notice something. Those stars aren't all the same. Some are really bright and right. some are pretty faint. All right, so everybody's wondering about this. We can make a segue by saying this is an area where our commitment to be faithful to what we've learned from Scripture actually, you know, the rubber meets the road. This is boots on the ground, touches close to the heart right now. We live in interesting times, as you've been saying. We, you've, you've had a series on um, perilous times. As we look around, things are a little bit crazy. We have social and economic and mm -hmm. moral and political turmoil. The most immediate thing right now, of course, is the coronavirus and all the, the panic that it's right. causing and stuff. So how, do we as, how are we as Christians supposed to respond to this in a way that's different than the world? Well, the first thing is faith as opposed to fear. Uh, we see people all over our country right now giving in to fear and panic. Uh, we as believers have nothing to fear. To me, it's almost like people suddenly woke up and realized that people die. Um, <laughs> right. More people die in car accidents. More people die by suicides. More people die by opium uh, overdoses, uh, by, you know, the... Uh, opioid crisis that we're facing and so on and so forth. More babies are murdered. Yeah, yeah think of abortion. I mean, right. basically, uh, an infant a second. Right. An right. infant a second is being terminated. Uh, we just recently had a, a, a vote, I think, in the House uh, that was promoting the idea that we should protect children that are born uh, in the aftermath of an attempted abortion, right. and it was voted down. Right, right. I, I can't even comprehend how anyone. I mean, that's murder, straight out. That's infanticide. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so it's it's absolutely crazy. So, you know, as believers, we start with faith, and what what is faith focused on? It's focused on the Word of God. And if we don't have a clear understanding of the teaching of the Word of God, then to just say, I have faith, means that I have faith in faith. It means nothing. Mm -hmm. Faith always have, has to have a clear, focused object. And the object of our faith, of course, first and foremost, is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
uh, and then it's the, what the Word of God says and what the Word of God teaches. So we overcome fear with faith, uh, and then we enter into the practical outworking, work out your own salvation, what God has worked in you, which is, again, brings us back, I think, to the love of Christ. Mm -hmm. uh, we look around us, we see a nation in need, we see a world in need, we see neighbors in need. And I think it's uh, on each and every one of us to ask ourselves the question, how can I make a difference in my world? You know, I may not have uh, a sphere of influence that touches other nations, but I have a sphere of influence that touches my family, uh, my extended family, my, my neighbor, my relatives, and so on and so forth. And therefore, we enter into the struggle. Uh, and we do what we can to alleviate the, the suffering. I'm, I'm always impressed when you go through the gospel story. It talks about you know, several times, uh, in particular Matthew and Mark, Jesus would go about the cities and the villages preaching and teaching and healing. And I find it fascinating that those three things are singled out because preaching is more focused to the unbeliever. It's proclaiming the right. good news. The teaching, that's focused on those who are already believers, they're disciples, and they need spiritual development. Mm -hmm. And the healing, and of course you could include in that breaking bread and feeding the multitudes, is just basically looking out for the needs that, that people have. And I think if we focus on those three things, uh, it's pretty hard to go wrong. Do you have any specific wisdom for uh, how to interact with people who are panicking you know like uh, my brother in his workplace i'm sure people at your workplace are you can see the panic happening around you when when they uh when somebody says something to you about how awful this is and what in the world are we going to do you know how do you interact with people about i about wouldn't that? i wouldn't respond to them immediately with this point but this is the thought in the back of my mind this is a good thing because I believe our country has needed for a long time to be brought to its knees. And, you know, when, when you have a fairy tale mentality and you suddenly run head on into reality, it's a good thing. Mm. Uh, it disillusions you and it brings you back to the hard, cold facts of existence on this earth. There has always been suffering. There have always been wars, there have always been plagues, there have always been earthquakes. Nothing new is really happening. Right. Uh, it's just that now people feel threatened. What people may die of here in this country, people have been dying of in other countries, and we have totally ignored it. Yeah. So now maybe it's coming home to us. I think this is going to humble people. I've done a series years ago on what I called crisis evangelism. When people are afraid, when people are concerned, when people are panicking, or when people are hurting, they kind of get the arrogance knocked out of them and they start becoming humble and they're a little bit more receptive. And I think we need to always look, certainly, at what we can do to help in a practical sense, mm -hmm. providing for those around us, but be ready for sensitive souls that are now willing to listen mm -hmm. that maybe weren't willing to listen some time ago. What you're just saying makes me think about what you said yesterday, Christopher, in our, our conversation, which was we've developed this culture that's lost its sense of community, its sense of uh, kind of household independence or even, you know, community independence where right. me and my neighbor, you know, I know what he's good at. I know what the neighbor across the street can do. I know what the neighbor down the road can do. And, and when something goes wrong, we can turn to each other. Mm -hmm. And we've built this culture of 
well, we'll go to the government entity or we need, uh, we need help from the Medicare system. We can't right. just call the doctor. Like I have to, you know, go through all these, these hoops and, and stuff. And I think it's definitely going to kind of reset that, hopefully reset that mindset and kind of push people back into their communities. Everybody's in their houses in so many cities right now. They're restricted to their neighborhoods. Exactly. And if your neighbor gets sick, you just said this today. Yeah. When your neighbor gets sick, it's, it's, we have a rich history in Christianity. Yeah. For thousands of years, being the ones who are willing to go into places where everyone is fleeing because of sickness, because of death, and stepping in and being willing to, to be the ones to minister and help. Exactly. So exactly. I, I think it's definitely that opportunity you're talking about is to live without Well, I, the I fear. think it's restoring us, as you said, to a sense of community, and community always has to be local. Right. I mean, it's right. great to be a part of a nation, and I love our nation, but someone who's 1,500, 2,000 miles away doesn't know my needs. Right. They, they don't know what's going on in my life. Uh, and I think the federal government has certain responsibilities. They should keep the people safe. They should guard the nation. And basically, the more, and I think we're seeing this in our current economy, the more they get off the backs of the American people, the more we're going to prosper and right. the better we're going to do. But uh, these uh, events that are taking place right now with the coronavirus and other things, I think is going to help us get back to what scripture emphasizes all the way through. And it's always community. You know, it's always love your neighbor. Who's your neighbor? He's a guy that's hurting next right. to you. Right. Like the story of the good Samaritan tells. Right. We were actually talking about, uh, if this goes for very long, it could sh really shake up the global economy. It would definitely, you mentioned earlier today, it, would, it could definitely affect our, in a positive way, <laughs> a positive way from our perspective, affect our de our dependence on China and things like that. Right. Um, ultimately, it could drive us back to a more localist, a more decentralist emphasis of, mm -hmm. of neighborhoods and household economies and things like that. And ultimately, that, that might be what we need is this this complete societal shakedown that forces us to rethink how we're, how we're doing things. The danger in things like this, particularly to Christians, because the unbeliever at least has the excuse that they don't know any better, right. is that it takes our eyes off the fact that God is always at work. Mm. Uh, we look at things and we say, you know, where is God? Hey, he's right in the middle of it. If anything's happening, he's in the thick of it. And I always think of the passage in John chapter 5 where Jesus heals on the Sabbath. He did it intentionally to provoke the religious leaders, uh, and they attacked him because the idea of the Sabbath was that God rested on the seventh day. And Jesus' answer was probably a bit shocking and confusing to him. He said, my father's been working until now, and I'm also working. Mm -hmm. And their idea was, the, the Jewish conception of the Sabbath was what, that when creation was finished, God started resting and he just kept on resting. And Jesus' point was, as soon as the first creation was done and the fall had occurred, God went to work on a new creation. And Jesus was working with the Heavenly Father to bring about that yeah. new creation. And uh, I think because we, uh, we have the scriptures that make very clear to us, I mean, with Joseph uh, saying to his brothers, you intended these things against me for evil, but God intended it for good. He knew that God was working in the midst of the the things that were happening. And even though it looked bad, even though there was suffering that was involved, 
he knew that God was going to come through on the other end. And we bring that forward into the New Testament. Paul reminds us that God is working in all things for the good. Uh, right now with this coronavirus that's spreading across the country, God's at work. And, uh, you know, as Jed said, there are going to be good things that are going to come out of this. Personally, uh, if we're willing to be led and, and refined and purified, there are going to be good things personally. Community-wise, I think there are going to be a lot of good things that are come. Going back to what you said about knowing what the guys down the street can do and so forth, years ago during uh, Hurricane Ike, uh, which I think hit Galveston, um, I remember reading an article about one, one group of people on a block went around and they found out <clears throat> who has generators, who has chainsaws, uh, who's really good at cooking. And what they did was they formed their block into a small community. And they said, we're going to go through this together. When the hurricane hit, it almost devastated the whole island. I mean, it was just, it looked like a war scene. And yet, this little community that stuck together, they decided they were all going to eat together. Uh, they had the ladies that were doing the food preparation, everything. They had the people that had medical skills that were taking care of people. Uh, they pulled together as soon as a tree went down. Three guys showed up with chainsaws in 15 or 20 minutes. That tree was out of the way and taken care of. And they came through fine while all their neighbors around them uh, were in panic and distress and and all kinds of problems. So right. going through something as a team is always going to be better. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. So any final tips, words of advice, anything like that for especially the the young men? We have a growing population, I would say, of young men in our church um, who are who are really interested in this in what you were just talking about mm -hmm. and making our 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 church community strong, but also our our neighborhoods and just uh, helping one another um, in our households and stuff and, and finding this balance between faith instead of fear um, and at the same time taking common sense mm -hmm. precautions and preparation. Well, obviously, the first priority is keep growing, uh, keep growing in your faith. But then I think it's good for us to ask ourselves the question, what do I have to offer? What skills do I have? Uh, what natural abilities do I have? There's nothing worse than a person who is not fitted for a certain position trying to play that role. Mm -hmm. uh, being honest with ourselves and, and even being open to the counsel of others and saying, you know, you're really good at this. We kind of ended our uh, session today on the statement submitting to one another. Part of that submitting is being willing to take the counsel of other people and say, look, you're, you're not really suited for this role, but you're really, really good at this role. Uh, and being willing to fit in. And then I think we need to equip ourselves. We need to be looking ahead. What can I learn that's going to be helpful? You know, how, how can I make myself a better and more effective member of my community or member of my family? So we, we never stop learning. We never stop training. We never stop trying to uh, equip ourselves with things that are going to make us more effective as a member of a body. Earlier today, I showed you this quote from a book, and the, and the book topic is not on this, but the principle completely applies. Um, and it says, today, every Christian is being called to between, between the wide path of acceptance by the world and the na narrow path of, um, of calling by God to do what, what God wants you to do. And I think that this greatly applies to 
any situation where panic is the world's response. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we've covered it multiple times in this, but I think reminding everyone as we go out, I can think of a couple times already where I've been just on the tip of my tongue in my work environment when everybody's like, oh, I'm not worried or like, I'm kind of worried. And I want to be like, I'm not worried because of my, my faith and my hope. And I, and I don't say it because of fear or whatever reason that, you know, and I kick myself afterwards. But I think now is the time to look for those situations as, as believers. If you're in your workplace, everybody's talking about this. Yes. This is the opportunity. Like you said, you've developed the, the crisis. Right. Um, what did you call crisis it? Crisis evangelism. Crisis evangelism. Yeah. It, we ha- Because we have the hope. Yeah. We have the hope. Yeah. And, and scripture tells us, be ready to share that hope that mm-hmm. is in you. And so I just want to encourage, you know, everyone, as you're thinking about this, you, you kind of have two choices on the shelf. You can go with the world in their panic, or you can get spun up and, and just, you know, everybody likes a good, a good uh, I don't know, embracing of a, of, a, of a panic. Yeah. Everybody enjoys <laughs> a good, uh, <laughs> a good brouhaha over, uh, over bad things. Um, but instead, be, be countercultural in the way that you address it and instead just just tell them like i'm, I'm really not afraid and if they ask then you have that opportunity to just share yeah. at least plant that small seed like you yeah like you, talked you know earlier. sometimes the greatest witness is just the calm and the poise and the stability uh and people do notice you know people look around and they see people and you think about what uh, peter talks about when he says that we need to be ready to give an answer a reasonable defense of of the faith when they ask Mm -hmm. and sometimes we should ask ourselves the question how come no one's asking me maybe they're not seeing anything different right yeah if you're not demonstrating hope then people aren't going to ask you for a reason for the hope that's in you right yeah and be willing to serve others if your neighbor needs help if you know they're sick take them a meal write them a card like jesus said to the lawyer when he asked who's my neighbor hey it's the guy next to you that needs help All right. Well, Gene, thanks so much again for taking the time to sit down with us. This has been fun and really helpful. Thank you. Don't forget to check the show notes for links to a few resources for further learning on some of these topics we've discussed. And to hear more of Gene and Ann's teaching, find their books, and learn more about and support their ministry, go to basictraining.org. Thanks again, and until next time, Godspeed.